Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to our Wednesday evening, One Revolution, Name Tags Chat. I'm honored today to be joined by Bobby McMullen. Bobby and I have known each other for a long time. We were on what then was the U.S. Disabled Ski Team, what is now the U.S. Adaptive Team. We are going to talk about the essence of name tags here. Name tags, our education, we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. I can't do this because I'm too old, I'm too poor, I'm too fat, I'm too, whatever it is, we have an excuse for why we can't do something. That's why our message, our, our motto is, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. Now, Bobby is a guy who has more labels than we're on the guitar case, Johnny Cash's guitar case, I think, from places he'd gone, right? So Bobby is, Bobby is a type one diabetes, lost his, lost his sight to type one diabetes, two kidney and, and pancreas transplants, open heart surgery, survived cancer, numerous tib fib fractures. I knew him back in the day, and we might talk about this one a little bit more. He actually, he, before we went to the Paralympics in Nagano, he pulverized his little toe. They had to cut his ski boot open so that his little piggy could hang out the outside so that it wasn't putting any pressure on it. Ended up having to get amputated afterwards. So I would say that one of, one of the name tags that Bobby can wear is just tough. He is a tough, tough dude. But you were at a, at a bike race, so visually impaired, and a downhill bike racer, and on your jersey, it says, Blind Bobby. And you told me that when you were there, somebody was giving you a hard time about wearing this jersey, about wearing Blind Bobby on the back, your name tag, effectively. What did you make of that? Oh, <laughs> well, Blind Bobby is a fond name that... Uh, the bike industry has dawned me with years ago. Um, I've been at this kind of level of cycling for almost 16 years now where the industry really opened its arms and I somehow created a, a, a welcome niche. And throughout the industry, it was, hey, Blind Bobby, Blind Bobby here, Blind Bobby there. And I've never, as you know, made take too, paid too much attention to any kinds of labels because I know you've labeled me and friends have made, labeled me as many. But I was actually standing in line and, um, at a race called the Sea Otter, which is one of the biggest races in North America. And it's a big amateur race, and I do it every year. And it's got a really fun downhill that's great as a spectator and great as a racer. And you, part of the ritual is you get to stand in line at everybody. In one instance, I was probably five out getting ready, which for me, in an able-bodied race, any sort of race, there is a lot of focus required and getting on the same page as my guide. And this lady came up from behind and uh, took exception to my jersey saying Blind Bobby and started with a pretty big tirade of how dare you disrespect people who are blind and visually impaired. You have no idea what their life is like and for you to make fun of it. And she didn't even ask why, but she just kept going 
and that it was one of those comical things where it was my brother's second uncle, stepsister's cousin, who she knew. And, you know, uh, I was looking for some kind of direct relationship with her and uh, a moment, a whole shot where I could explain to her. But it went on and on and on. And I'm pretty much kind of laughing and talking to my guide and saying, hey, we just got to get at the start house. And she kept following me. And I'm like, ma'am, you know, I'll be back around. You want to take this up? But, and I didn't even take the moment to explain, but I just was in my head, you know, you know again, I've got something kind of significant to do. And this is what I do. Um, and I didn't want to disrespect her in that sense and just say, shut the F up. I am blind. But a lot of people know me there. A lot of people I trained with happen to be aligned with me. And there's some kids, teenagers going, ma'am, 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 you, you need to leave him alone. And she gave them the right act like, no, this has to be addressed. This kind of stuff goes on too much. People having a jest at the, you know, the expense of a person who's blind or disabled. And one of the kids stops and goes, the dude's blind, lady. The dude is blind. And as I kind of got into the three, two, one, these kids, anyways, job well done by them. I was surprised, you know, you forget about it pretty quick, you know, those kind of interactions in life. Um, you know, there's too many to account for. And, you know, I, I, I want to burn my energy up doing something fun and, and uh, positive. And I, I look back on it and want to be wise and say that if I had a chance to speak to her again, I'd like to give her, a, you know, a, have her give me the platform to explain my reasoning, but there's no other reason. I have no problem with being called, being called lab labeled blind. I am blind. That's what it's called. And it's a fond nickname. <laughs> it's it, it's great and it's fitting and it, it, you know, it's appropriate. But at the same time, in her defense, she's not expecting somebody who's blind to be at this bike race, right? And so, so that, that to me is what's great. I look at it and go, okay, he's in this place where this label, you put a blind label on him. It's like, okay, you can't do that. And that's, yeah. that's effectively what you're doing, right? I mean, for yeah. you... You're saying, no, don't Absolutely. put that label on me. And that's a great point um, is that, you know, I do do something that's very unique to the visually impaired community to the extent some still believe I fake it for 20 some odd years. I've been faking it. And I guess all those doctors tests are like, I, I'm kind of like the conspiracies in our government right now. It's all a hoax. Um, but anyhow, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's a great point that I, I, I do put myself at risk. I do have a higher level of risk tolerance than some in regards to my own health abilities and what I do, which puts me in very unique environments that can often raise an eyebrow of disbelief. Um, and uh, yeah, it can. And the thing is, it, the, the people who are your peers know a lot more about what you're doing. Yeah. So I'd imagine, you know, there are two different impressions that are happening. One, one, the impression of this woman who's saying you're giving these people a hard time and you're saying, yeah. no, I'm giving these people a huge hand up. They're that's a great point. You know, the education and that's something where we spoke earlier about, you know, I can, I can walk down the street and people won't think I'm visually impaired or had ever been sick a day in my life. You don't have the luxury to do that you are immediately in a position to educate. The kids stare, they ask questions to mom and dad, and you have been on, the, on point in terms of leading 
that edu public education process. Because when I tell people that, sometimes I'll get the, well, you can't be that blind. You can't be that sick. Those transplants can't be that bad. Your cancer must not have been that bad. Okay. And, you know, again, it's again a, a kind of a labeling that people do and assumptions. But I'm lucky, you know, to be where I'm at. I'm lucky to get to do what I have. I'm lucky that my body's allowed me to do this for this long. And I think any chance I, sh I get these days, I want to be more even tempered and allow people their misgivings, not understanding, and be more of an appropriate tool of education for who we are versus what we are. We, we started kind of in the middle of this. Can we take a little step back? Oh, for sure. And, and, and so you had juvenile diabetes. And then when did you start losing your vision? And what was that like? And I think part of it for us, for us on the outside is that it's a scary thing for a lot of people to, to contemplate losing your vision. If I may quote a good friend of mine, Chris Waddell, and a very drunk thing that I was drunk, I don't know about him, you'd have to ask him. But you said one time to me was, I would never trade places with you. Did I really? Okay, yeah. nice of me. Um, and that's uh, something I took to heart in terms of how we view ourselves and how we view others' challenges. Now, there's people with more challenges than I am. Mine started, I was age 12, type one diabetic, yes. Um, very compliant. Um, I won't say I was perfect, but very compliant through my years. And as we know how prevalent- Compliant meaning checking insulin I, levels and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, I took my shots, tested, ate right, exercised. You know, they said the more I worked out, the less insulin, the more food I could eat. Remember, I acquired this in 1977 and treatments have evolved. However, going back to the story of how this progressed, you know, a very supportive family, which many don't, but I had parents that held me accountable, sisters that would rat on me, I mean, tell on me. With six sisters, I couldn't move, but I wasn't perfect. But I played, you know, uh, my freshman year, four sports, the rest of the year, I played three sports in high school, did relatively well, always very active and always, I worked hard at doing, taking care of myself, always have. I would not have a transplant today, some 23, four years now, have if I'm not compliant, if I don't pay attention. It has been ingrained in me growing up. And so when people hear about my story, they're like, oh, you must not have taken care of yourself. No, either way, good or bad, I don't begrudge anybody how, if they have a, you know, their outcome is good, stay with what you're doing, know what you're doing. But if they don't have a positive outcome, diabetes is awful as we all know, and it's affecting so many people, both type one and type two, it's becoming everyday conversation for people. Now me, um, I had no indications of my sight issues. Uh, my checkups were good, my A1Cs were good, and uh, I was in law school at 29 and started having a problem seeing the board. And I went to an ophthalmologist, uh, ophthalmo ophthalmologist, and he said, I can't help it, do you need to see an ophthalmologist you will be a total in a month. So at age 29, first year of law school, yeah, sight really? the door. Yeah, I was a wow. total for about a month. Yeah. And that, uh, is, that had to be super scary at that point, totally blind yeah. within a month. Yeah, um, and the, the process of it is, 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 is fairly horrific if you were to imagine, remember the old lava lamps? We've all used oh, yeah, to have sure. maybe, um, and um, it was like having a lava lamp in my eyes. It slowly filled up with blood. You would see these floaters. 
and then it would get redder and redder and redder and one filled up and the other one I was in a car ride with a buddy and I it all went out literally the lights went out and I uh said dude you gotta take me home <laughs> I can't see he's like yeah I know you want to talk about it I go no no really I, I can't see anymore so really yeah so it was one moment it lights yeah, out it, one it, moment it, it, it filled up. It was still, you know, moving as people who experience floaters for many different reasons, exertion, other uh, ophthalmological reasons um, can cause them. You know, a, a person with great health can have them, but these just were, like I said, prolific diabetic retinopathy. It was that the eyes are very sensitive to uh, circulation and the body sends a, a, a chemical, basically releases a chemical when it's not getting enough blood to induce the growth of blood growth of blood vessels. And so they grew like pyrocanthid to the back of both my retinas and they started tearing the retinas away. And as they tore the retinas away, the blood vessels fractured and filled my eyes full of blood. And so then it became the doctors couldn't see in there to do any more laser treatments and they needed to do a vitrectomy, which is what they did. Going in at the time, you know, at the time of vitrectomy success rate was about 50 or 60%. And, you know, if you can't see anything, you know, if you go in and you come out with 10 or 15% of your sight, you pretty much won the lottery. So that was where it started in 1993. And so where did you go from there? Like, how did that, you know, so, so, so the lights go out when you're yeah. talking to your buddy. And then what do you do? Did you stay in law school? Did you, what, what's next? Because you hadn't planned for this part. <laughs> no, um, definitely had a step back on law school. My immediate, when I was told I was going to be blind in a month, um, I drove home to my parents and I had called them from the ophthalmologist's office to make sure they were home. You know, and you know, my dad, great man, you know, uh, passed away from Parkinson's a few years ago. My mom passed on a few years ago, but great, great parents. And uh, it was, uh, it was always one of those things where if I got hurt, I've been hurt a lot, as you mentioned, broken bones, broken femurs, broken everything just from playing. I mean, nothing but choices I've made. But anytime I've had to let my parents know I've been hurt, I'd call home. And uh, as per usual, my mom answered the phone and I remember these moments vividly. And, you know, we talked, she's saying, how you doing? And, um, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, pretty good. You know, you guys home, I want to come see you and dad. And, and she's, uh, she's, she always knew. And she would say, and, and I go, hey, um, you know, before you go, can I talk to dad? And immediately she's, uh, she says, what hospital are you in or what's wrong? And I'm like, hey, yeah, that was always the case. All right. Hey, mom, good. Yeah, great. Can I talk to dad? Yeah, what hospital are you in? That was always the MO she knew. And in this particular instance, I just said, hey, let me talk to dad real quick. And I told him I was coming home and that I need to see him outside if he'd meet me, you know, and he came out and, uh, stepped out of my truck, um, put my hands on my knees and started crying. And I told him I'm going to be blind in a month. And he put his hand on my head, cried with me a little bit. We stood up and hugged, wiped our cheeks on each other. I remember this moment, his scruffy cheek and my scruffy cheek. And he said, let's go tell your mom. And we went in, sat down, figured out where we we're going to go from here. And uh, what I did know that moment at dinner and decided and I told them that I was not going to change who I am. Fundamentally, I was their son. 
I was my sister's brothers. I was my friend's friend. And from there to today, it's been a path of a series of adjustments. At first it was sight, then it's transplants, then it's sickness and health, it's breaking bones, it's getting back, falling down seven times, getting up eight, it's open heart surgeries, it's pacemakers, it's more cancer. You know, um, it's, it's always, we all know this. I, I, I want people to realize that I may be a decent guy and Chris might vouch for me, I don't know oh, if our, per, I don't know 100%. if our, yeah, I don't know if our parole officers will vouch for it, but <laughs> I feel like I've led a fairly productive life and, um, you know, each step of the way, you know, I've always tried to be a good man, a good person, a good friend, like I said, a husband, uh, brother, son, father, you know, but that doesn't preclude us from more shit happening. People will always say, oh God, you've gone through enough. No, I haven't. That's not for me to determine. There are people who are experiencing, you know, especially right now in certain circumstances, in so many ways, difficult hardships that I don't know that I could manage. But each step of the way since I was 29 and heretofore, uh, I've always said that, you know, um, life shows up every day and it's just what it goes to what we're sharing today. It's what we do with it. And uh, people ask, well, what did you do every time you were told two transplants? You were on, you know, dialysis and you were told this. And I'm like, you know, the hardest part about going on dialysis is when they tell you, you and your parents, your parents are crying in the room. Me, my step is I, I channel my anger, I think, pretty well. That's my vehicle. I want to know when I'm living again. I won't stop that moment, but when can I get back? To being Bobby McMullen. What does that mean? Because it's because we kind of see what you're fighting against, right? You're fighting against the vision or being limited. You're fighting against, you know, the dialysis, the pain of that. You're fighting against, you know, wh whatever injuries or those kinds of things. But what do you what are you fighting for? What is it? What is it? What does life mean to you that you're willing to put everything you have into it and go through this other stuff. What do you, what do you expect on the other side or do you expect anything? I'll challenge you on the things I have to, I'm going through or go through. It's, it's not a choice. <laughs> um, I'd rather not do all this, you know, um, as you know, you don't want to do this, but it's what we have to do to be who we are. And I think quite simply, um, I don't, it's, it's a very simple answer to me. I don't, I'm not necessarily a man of religion and I'm not going to hide behind the app, but I'm spiritual. I just don't know. I was uh, born and raised a Catholic, went to Catholic, my parents went to school, to church every day. And me, I don't know. I look at some of the things that have been dumped in my table and I've shrugged my head, you know, shoulders and said, why? Well, why did I, in a previous relationship, lose two kids at seven months? You know, right. why? And I stopped asking why. It's what, why, what will I do now? What will I do to help that person or those other people? And myself, honestly, what drives me is I don't know about heaven. I don't know about hell. Like, here's my proposition. If this is heaven, Chris, if this is my heaven, I'm going to fucking rock it. And I'm going to make it pay every day I'm around. 
I am going to be the best friend, the best husband, the best father. I'm going to be who I am versus being labeled or what people's expectations or short of expectations of what I can do. And you have done it and I have done it. And we know hundreds of others that do it every day is that people don't see who we are. Oftentimes they're amazed of what we do. And I'm so thankful for that every day that I have this incredible life and these incredible friends. Was that what was important for you in the beginning? What you did that you, that you do something? It's that you lose control. Mm -hmm. Or if with me being a diabetic, I, I immediately, you know, wanted to beat myself up over like, what did I miss? What did I do wrong? And I, I could micromanage every step of the way from the time I was diagnosed as a diabetic to the time I lost my sight. I could do that with my transplants. I could do that with my cancer, but I have a really short memory. I have to remember, you know, much of this is out of my control, but those things I could have controlled, did I do enough? I've always been taught to give 110%. And I did not know how I was going to go about it. I needed to figure out what I was going to need some help. Yeah. And I think you learn really quick that asking for help is not a bad thing. And don't be afraid of it. And I think I was able to reach out to Ray Watkins and ask questions. I had plenty of people in support. Something that is very, may be very unique to others that have been in similar situations. They don't have that blanket of support. And, you know, I, it's never been a tough guy thing. It's just that I knew who I was at 29. And I knew that may not pan out in the next couple of years in terms of law school. But, you know, if I had finished law school, I'd just been a shitty lawyer in Reading, divorced twice with six kids trying to hump somebody's leg for ski gear or bike gear. That's how that would have turned out. Now, I don't know. I think we have the opportunity to reach a large audience and take our experiences, good and bad, and help them find themselves, find their name tag that works, not works for them, but they're confident and strong in because we have that. And when you talk about name tags, you know, people call me anything they want, but I know who I am. And so do you. So is my family. So is my friends. Did, did you start skiing first? Was that, was that the first sort of physical thing you did? The first thing that you thought, well, I can't really see anymore. So skiing sounds like a great idea. I actually, at the, it was in, um, I lost my sight officially. It was uh, October, um, right around the first, second of October, things went super south. And after about a two week uh, rest period because of the surgeries, I, I actually got on a mountain bike and yeah, uh, yeah um, to just, you know, balance, um, you know, ski season was coming. That's where I shifted to, even though I was, you know, go, I was theoretically still going to law school and, you know, I was working in a ski shop and now my routine had always been get ready for ski season, go to school at this point. But um, I think at that point it was um, what I could do is figure out how to do it. I found out right away that, you know, my left eye doesn't work and the right eye to give people a pretty good idea that when you go to the eye test at the doctor and you get your, the eye chart and you name off at certain distances or adjustments, I can't see the eye chart with my good eye. Um, so, can't see it at all. No, it's uh, I can see a tiny light, but then as it gets closer, which uh, you know does help, um, I'll be able to pick up the light, the screen, and as again things progress closer and closer. Um, but I, 
I needed to know for myself my own limitations, so I would go out by myself and you know fall over a hundred times in the driveway, learn how to ride my bike again. You know, your balance is, is way off, your depth perception is way off. And then I had some conversations with um, uh, Ray Watkins, and you know, I had I understood and knew what he was doing with Brian Santos at the time. Brian Santos, the greatest of all time, you know, one of the finest human beings. But you know, that model was the lead fall. Visually Pardon. impaired skier. And Brian Ray, Santos. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ray Watkins, the guide, longtime coach of the team. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Brian Santos, who, you know, our teammate and again, many time medalist and Olympic champion. Anyways, I knew the model and I thought, okay, even early, it, if I'm going to do that on skis, I got to figure out how to do it on a bike, but I got to figure out if I can stand up on a bike. So that was probably the first thing I went through. And again, something I'm maybe built differently than some, not all, but you know, I can take a beating. Um, that's not an issue for me. You know, the, you know, the mental health, the mental game of like, you know, practice and getting up and learning something. It was frustrating that I couldn't ride a bike for a few days, literally just tipping over, pedaling around, you know. So riding a bike was the first thing that I started looking at how I was going to get on the snow. Spent a lot of time skiing in college and figured that was going to work. First time I went up with Ray, all I did was fall over. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because so like when I had my accident, my parents had both taught skiing and they've subsequently gone into teaching adaptive skiing. And my mother went and started doing that at Mount Tom where we had first grown up skiing. And, and she taught a ton of, she was always, she had the patience with the little ones. She was the one who could take all the little ducklings and keep them all pointed in the right direction and had the patience to make it all work. And it was on this little J bar and it was, I mean, it was barely even tilted, you know, I mean, you, you couldn't get going more than like three miles an hour on this, but she said that in order to teach, they had her put on a blindfold and ski as a blind skier. And on this trail, she had skied hundreds and hundreds and maybe even thousands of laps on this little trail. She couldn't stay upright. I mean, same thing you're talking about that. It's not, it's not where you're going. It's, it's where you are and where you are in space Yeah, that, that, you know, that throws you and it's the unexpected stuff, right? I mean, that's where I think when I was skiing, looking at you, I said, well, I, I don't know if I want to do that. When the light gets bad, I think I'm, I'm going home. You know? and I don't know. I, I look at what you've done and said, I don't know if I could do that. I, I mean, that's, you said, I, I said, I didn't want to trade places with you. It, it's coming from a place of, of, of huge respect for what you're doing, just because there's so much faith in another person when you yeah. have a guide. Yeah. There's, there's so much belief in, in, okay, we're going in the right direction. I'm going to do what I'm doing, but I have no idea, or do what I'm supposed to do, but I have no idea what might actually come up. Yeah. And, and so I, I have a friend who, who's asked a question about uh, the mechanics of, of biking blind. Uh, and and he, he's actually he's been a big road biker for a long time. And he said he's just started to mountain bike himself. So so he has the respect coming off the, the smooth asphalt to to this uh, uneven terrain with roots and rocks. And and he can see them. And he's saying it's a little challenging for him. What, how does it how does it work for you? Uh, the, the transition from road to mountain, just in a specific sense, you know, I from just my answering the question from a 
maybe a coaching standpoint would be uh, I, I do a fair amount of coaching, but I teach basically fundamentals, you know, have good balance, good athletic stance on the bike on or off. You can figure that out if you've been skiing or doing anything in life. Same applies to a bike um, and just have soft hands, you know, good position on your bike, have soft hands, no matter what bike you're riding. I ride big monster bikes, six, seven, eight inch travel bikes. And I can pretty much point it straight. Anybody can point it straight with their eyes closed and haul the mail through it and bounce around. So I write. Not that you're recommending that. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't, you know, that's, do I have to sign a disclaimer? But I think for, you know, someone making a transition into the sport of wanting to improve is work on your balance. Put your waist, you know, put your hips just right behind your bottom bracket. Be out of the saddle and have soft hands. It's, you know, my dad taught me. Wow, when I was a kid, soft hands, always have soft hands, you know. Um, I was a quarterback, basketball player, baseball player, he always taught me soft hands. And even in, he never rode a mountain bike in his life, but he knew what I was talking about, about that not over gripping. And people often get super tense and they do it right through their hands. The first thing you do is relax your hands. And how about with regard to your guide, though? Like, how does it, I mean, I understand the, the nature of soft hands, but there's also, there, there's a trail and I'm assuming that your objective is to stay on that trail. <laughs> oh, always a good start. <laughs> I knew you were a smart man there, Mr. Wandale. Um, <laughs> Every once in a while. The, the, guide, the guide athlete relationship is very critical. As you know, you saw it exist, the ups and downs between it. It's very intimate. And, um, you know, with skiing and cycling, it's the dynamic is very, very similar. And while I'm probably going to, you know, reap the uh, oh. people, people have to have something to say about the recommendations, though. It's not complicated. Um, it's a series of rights and lefts and different, um, you know, different, different types of turns, if you will, you know, um, just like skiing. You know, uh, there's a certain language that I developed for riding that I kind of stole from skiing, but it's a lead follow. And uh, if you have a person with a combination of sight and uh, limited sight, you know, the combination of audio or, or their voice and their sight helps a system where you can track. My system is pretty simple. It's based on rights and lefts. Um, pull up if there's an object, a rock. Um, if there's a tabletop to jump over, they'll say table, table, table. And I go through a series of fundamental moves on the bike. If I'm going into a rocky section, they'll start yelling, bumpy, bumpy, bumpy. I'll get out of my saddle, lower my seat, push the bike forward, and be in an athletic position. I don't see the track. The guide and athlete dynamic is very critical. You always have to have combination. The bet, uh, you have to have a, a great combination of um, riding skill. It doesn't have to be the fastest off the front but communication skills. Gals are much better guides than men in most cases because they're willing to communicate. And mm -hmm. I'd rather have a ton of sound than no sound. You know, it's a, if it's a soft left, meaning a, let's say a super G turn, that's my analogy. It'd be, a, it'd be soft left, soft left, soft left. I have them repeat because sound travels, bike makes noise. And so it's a soft left is more of a super, super G sound. Uh, 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 excuse me, a super G turn. A left, 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 I would make as a GS turn. Shorter radius turns or hard left, hard left, hard left. But what I would call normal turns or just basic turns, um, 
Again, that's up to the person to identify what that is for themselves and to identify it with a rider by spending time with them. But it is a series of right, 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 left, left, left. And then it can be a little more technical with where they want me on the trail. So I see the trail in my head divided into three parts, left side, middle, and right, if we're going straight down the hill. So if we turn left and there's the inside line is, is chunky or bad, he'll say outside left, outside left. So he'll tell me where to be on the trail first, outside, right, outside left, you know, and then the next word is actually the direction. So outside left, it's a left-hand turn on the outside. Um, stop is a real big one. Stop, <laughs> I'd imagine. Um, yeah. And the, some of the funniest things that happens all the time is that when I say I'm off, I'm off, I mean, I can't see my guide anymore. Um, I'll just, you know, they're, they're, what, they're, what they'll, they'll do is they'll sit up and, and get off the pedals and coast um, and let me catch up because I'll pedal hard at them to get that gap back so I can pick up their shape. What happens a lot of times is people stop talking when I say I'm off. And I'm like, no, I, I can still talk. You can still listen. You know, and that's a, that's a funny thing, but it's so intense. You know, if you go to a downhill and you're racing an hour, 45 minutes on the downhill, hour and a half, it is so intense all the time. People get lefts and rights messed up and they want to be so apologetic. But that's, that's my risk tolerance. This is, they're allowing me to do what I love to do. A person who takes time, and time is the most valuable thing we have no matter what you do. They take time to come ride with me. That's a day or hours or minutes they've spent to allow me to what I get to do what I love to do as a person. They let me be me. It is my sense of freedom. I don't ride a tandem. I love the independence and I've developed a system that I'm comfortable with. I can't say it's great for every visually impaired person. There are mechanisms and systems from tandems to different styles of riding, depending on a person's vision or therefore lack of. But I just like to get people out of the box, think out of the box. And when people think of a blind mountain biker, they'll go, oh yeah, yeah I guess it'd be right on a tandem. But, you know, I've look up the mega avalanche, look up Downeyville, look up, you know, Sea Otter Course or North Star. I get to ride these places and each one of them I've walked down in its entirety to get a feel and a touch. But each one now I ride fairly proficiently and have a great time. And that's the teamwork and the time someone spends with me to allow me to live my life. That's a gift. What kind of speeds are you talking about? The Kamikaze downhill um, I did a few years ago in Mammoth. It's a traditional one where guys are actually going 60. I got to go 49. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's, that's moving along for me. I'll take that. I have a buddy, uh, Kevin Zott, who uh, he used to be a, a judo player. And, and he golfed a little bit, you know, he'd get on these business golf outings kind of thing. And he was a, a B3. So he saw a little bit more than you did. A, there, there are three different categories of in, in, in skiing and, and in a variety of other sports where the B1 is completely blind, where they have, they have tape over their goggles. So if they can have any perception of light or anything, which could be an advantage, they, they eliminate that. Whereas you're in the middle category where you where you can see some and then and then he's in a in a more uh, has more vision and and he'd golf and and somebody would say you know well there's a there's a lake in front of you and it, he was famous for saying well you can't can't fear what you can't see is that is that part of your deal as Ab- well absolutely i get that a lot some of the place i've ridden or even what i 
often pull off. It's that, you know, I, I'm not quite sure I would do some of those things if I could see them. And uh, there's a little movie called The Way Bobby Sees It. It's a fun documentary on me from about 12 years ago. And I am riding in Downeyville. And there's a spot where it's a get off. It's 40, maybe 60 feet to this little valley creek or river, the Yuba River. And the trail's probably three feet wide. And it's a big rock granite wall on one side. And it's a get off. And I've ridden it lots. And I know people just, you know, I've ridden with people like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm walking. Oh, my God, I'm walking. And people will always say, dude, you would not do this. Well, during the filming of this, of this, I, I botched a move and I fell. And it was probably one of two times I've fallen. And I'm, I'm, I'm scrambling, you know, hold on to my bike. And I'm scrambling on this one little, little notch and kind of crawling back up. And I could hear the rocks, you know, it's the quintessential guys, you know, falling off the edge he's hanging on for his life and I scramble back up and I can kind of woo, glad you know let you know you're alive and I'm and they go oh my god Bobby you know you scared us to death and I'm like I just got a test I just got a test so I grabbed a big boulder to throw it off I really wanted to know how big it was and it was that moment of throwing it nothing yet nothing yet then you hear the curve the, the, the splash of rock and water and I'm like yeah it does not suck to be me right now, you know, that I don't see very well. So did that, did that make you scared when listening for this rock and listening and listening and listening? Y yeah. You know, being, being afraid, you know, it's good to get scared yourself once in a while, let you know you're alive, you know, and, and I don't mean just go run across the freeway as fast as you can and see if you don't get hit, but there's calculated risks involved and people will say, I'm really stupid. I'm an idiot. Cause I've had two transplants and I'm risking this. I'm like, well, this is what I've done for most of my life now. And I'm pretty darn good at it. I'm not the fastest. I'm actually quite slow compared to most people, but I'm efficient and I know my risk tolerance. If I don't feel it a particular day, I'm very good about stepping it back. And I think everybody needs to do that. But I also feel like, you know, that little moment of, you know, a little bit squirrely, you know the feel. Um, but yeah, uh, it should, it's stuff like that should scare you. It's part of the experience, but it's also part of life of being a human being. and you know, sometimes part of why we do it. Sick, I know. Well, it, it's sometimes those those moments in between, right? It's it's kind of like it with skiing. I felt like you all you had to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And and not being in control all the time. And yeah. and, and and sort of you're in control, then you're out of control, then you're back in control. And and knowing that that it's okay. There's a, there's a bit of a flow where if you, if you stay, you know, it's sort of the difference between walking and running We're running. There are times that you have both feet off the ground, right? This is the way that it works. And, yep. and you're in effect, you're kind of out of control versus having both feet on the ground at all times. And, yeah. and, and, and that, that really is kind of the distinction. And, and it's, it's it's the freedom in sometimes in some ways when you get to sport when you get to that point where it's okay to be out of control yeah. for a period of time you don't want to be out of control all the time that's just dangerous but being out of control at some point means that you're actually within the flow of what's going on and we had another question about the guides and and for you skiing and mountain biking are really similar yeah. with regard to the guides yeah the relationship there is very similar and it puts a premium 
on your relationship with that guide? Have you worked consistently with the same people? And is it the same people in skiing and in biking that you've been able to work with? So you have that relationship and that communication? You know, throughout my quote career as a, you know, a part of the uh, disabled Alpine team, um, you know, I got to work with some great people, David Marchi, Bill Hosser, Norman, you know, I mean, and we got to learn from a, a, the best guide I think that's ever put skis on to this day in any country is, you know, Ray Watkins. And we got to learn from him and Brian Santos. So I had a great template to follow. But what people, don't, you know, it's a mechanical thing went down in the snow. It's a left, 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 right, 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 follow their lines, follow their shapes. But the using the same person over and over again, especially at that level, which is the highest level in, in, in disabled outpoint sports with the U.S. team, you know, the expectation is to win. You have to have that winning combination and that winning combination for the visually impaired, our adaptation in disabled sports as a visually impaired athlete is our guide. My adaptation while I race able-bodied or have raced able-bodied events on bikes, my adaptation is a person. And uh, Marchi, Marky, David Markey used to give me a bad time. He goes, oh, you call me a tool, dude. Don't call me. And because everybody has different tools. A monoskier has his ski and outriggers. A uh, BK has uh, his outriggers or, you know, an, uh, an prosthetic uh, leg. A prosthetic leg. Um, you know, each person has an adaptation, uh, be it outriggers. Um, you know, some uh, have some uh, like George Santanitas, a little different mm-hmm. level that while he'd be recognized as a total, he's a standup, but. You know, with Jacob Rife, Jacob had arm riggers, but you, obviously there was a different, you know, mechanism involved. It's based on your disability, but also in disabled skiing, that's, it is the adaptation that puts us in that position is that I can't do it without my guide. So that relationship is really important. And it's both, it's important, but not only what we do on the snow or on, on the dirt, but it's also important off the bike to support each other. And if that dynamic is fractured, it's it, it's just as tough as that person breaking a leg. You know, if your relationship isn't solid, that you're not good communicators, that you find yourself at odds, and I've experienced that in my life. Those that I've worked with in the past, especially with the team, very consistent year in, year out. Um, and with the bike, it's always been some local people. Uh, Jason Allen, longtime best friend, one of the best guys, if not the best guy I have. Heidi, my wife, is is tremendous. That's time spent. She's a great rider. And, um, but if I went to a place called Whistler, uh, you know, I would ride with some interesting high level athletes, uh, Jamie Goldman, one of the best free riders in the world, Kurt Voorhees, you know, they had that skill set to get me over big airs. I mean, these are 20 foot tables at a line and using their communication skills, but also that skill on the bike, Andy Friesen, local guy I rode with every day. One of the best all around riders. Again, we're not the fastest but I need that communication. And what I really know we're clicking is that I get done with a ride and I haven't thought about following. I just comes into a real rhythm, that flow where the conversation stopped being shouted at you. And it's just left, 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 right, right, right. How's mom and dad? Good. How are you? How's the kids? Good. Hey, right, right, right. Pull up. It literally evolves that way. And in a day's time, you have some of the best conversations and you get to, I get to have my independence. So that combination, consistency, if I can, 
allows me that independence that I've achieved learning how to ride my bike. Can I ask about the tabletops? You've mentioned tabletops a couple of times. And so this is where there is a jump. The tabletop yeah. means that it's flat on the yeah. top. Yeah. And then there's a then there's a landing. You said yeah. that you were doing 20 foot tabletop. So that means that it's 20 feet of flat up on top. Yeah. And how does that work? I mean, you're coming in at a certain speed and are they telling you, Bobby, you've got to, you've got to fly 20 feet to get to the downside of this jump. Cause if you don't, you case that jump, you land on the flat part, which is not comfortable. You probably end up going up over the handlebars. And, and I know you've done that a few times, but how do you do it without going over the handlebars? Um, it's taken a long time. These places like Whistler and North Star that are bike parks, I spent a lot of time with. And at first you're rolling it like anybody, first time seeing them, you're rolling it and I'm touching and feeling it. And when I'm there, it goes to those people I'm riding with. They know how to basically lead me in at what speed I need. But it becomes a timing issue where, you know, they roll into the face of the jump. I'm two bike links back, which is kind of where I need to be. And they are talking ahead. They're not talking, being on the, on the face of the jump right now. They're looking ahead and they start loading their bike. They start communicating. So they'll start yelling table, table, table as they're loading their bike up and I'm out of the saddle and I'm loading it up. It works, I'd say 50% of the time when I'm riding really well and have a good rhythm. Um, okay. I, 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 I have my limitations, you know. Um, I'll do small gaps, but you have to scope them out, see if they're not lipped. Um, you know, anybody that knows Stacy Cohead up at Whistler, that guy is remarkable in a chair. That guy airs everything out like you can't believe in a four-wheel chair. And he's certainly an inspiration to me the first time I went up. But then I realized how massive A-Line is. That's just the name I'm throwing out. And it is huge. It's a hundred huge tabletops. And I started by walking them. Now I can go about eight out of 10 on a good week there. And um, it's a matter of rolling in, keeping speed, and everything doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be close. Because you're right, I do come up short, but that's why I like tables in that environment. I know how to kind of adapt. Um, if I come up short, if I case it, I'm pretty comfortable at casing it. But I discovered a few years ago, about five years ago, when I was there, I was like, you know, it's a lot easier if I can backside it. But there's commitment involved, and it does take you know, a great team of communicating. So it's just the same, left, 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 right, 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 pedal, pedal, pedal. And they'll start yelling, table, table, table. I'll know where we're at. I'll know what, what, what table it is. I'll know the feature to face. I'll, after spending a day there, feeling them all up. And I'll load it up when he says, table, table, table. I take a couple of pedals, step into it, press into the face and I'll feel it change. And I'll just work that technique, try to keep the bike balanced in the air. It's not the air that bothers me, Dan. Chris, it's the landing. <laughs> it's the landing. Yes, yes, I know. The air is an indication that there will yeah. be a landing at some point, right? Yeah. But what, what does that anticipation feel like? Um, you, like anything, you know, people can close their eyes and jump off of a box. And it's not that sweet, but do it a couple times. You know, you can get a feel for it, like echolocation. Go into a room. You can sort out echolocation. Repetitiveness, same lines. Riding, an, riding a track like A-Line, which is, I refer to it, it's probably the most well-known jump line in the world in Whistler. It's 
that's a lot more fun and I won't say easier, but a lot less challenging than taking on some of the single track, rocky, big bouldery stuff that I try to ride, you know, um, because the, the ground and berms are so well done, uh, you know, using, you know, big berms, everything is like it's raked. The jumps are worked on every day, just like a very well-groomed slope style course uh, or a ski, ski track with, that's been groomed. It's very well taken care of. So it, it really enhances my ability when I go there. Um, but, you know, to go to Downeyville, Downeyville's a beat down. That's the meanest thing I do to myself. I'll, I'd go to bar if I could. But, uh, you know, it's just ever-changing rocks, boulders, dirt, light terrain. You know, light bothers my good eye certain ways. Um, you know, just how fitness levels might be, how strong you are. I'm glad to hear that you were inspecting it because as, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, okay, this is, this is one of those where you're just kind of getting after it and, and, and hoping for the best, but the inspection makes a whole lot more sense is the, the idea of, okay, if you're rolling up and over it, you get a feel, you get a feel for distance, you get a feel for, for the lip of, of the jump, you get a feel for the landing, which is really, you know, looking at that stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the coolest things I think that oh. the commitment that you have to make this happen because you have to have that commitment or it's not going to happen. Yeah. But knowing that there's a lot of preparation that yeah. goes into that commitment, it's not just commitment. What we had another question here. What are your plans for the future? Are you a, are you a day by day guy or do you have a five-year plan? Do you have a 10 year plan? What's, what's the program here? Um, wow. Ted, your plan, you know, some, I guess, uh, if you really looked at my, if you look at my, my chart, it's, uh, it's not a winner. <laughs> uh, this is your um, medical chart. Is that what yeah. You're yeah. If you look at my medical chart, you know, there's, you know, I, I think I have to continue being the best Bobby McMullen I can be, which means I'm, my goal is to be the best dad to my daughter and husband to my wife and to be a contributing member of the community I live. And when I'm into these new places, like being a father at a school that, you know, um, I actually had this happen. Um, I was waiting for my daughter and uh, someone challenged me on my, my, my visual acuity and said, you can't be that, you can't be blind. You're not actually blind. I'm like, well, I guess that defends, defends but statutorily I am how, well, you how can you prove blind. that yeah, how, yeah you know and I'm like well who are you anyway and I I don't know what to you know again this is different things different places but you have a five-year-old going well my daddy's blind well my daddy's blind well my daddy has spare parts I mean they're beautiful kids in honesty right they, they just yeah. are beautiful well then you find yourself explaining your daughter needs to you know your daughter's going around and telling people that you're blind and that really you should really address that and I'm like why I am Oh, well, you can't be that blind. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. <laughs> well, what's that blind? <laughs> Again, you know, I, I, things like this, just, I do, I want to punch them in the throat. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I also have that, I have that ego. I mean, it's like, well, you obviously don't know who I am. I'm Bobby fucking McMullen. Go Google me kind of shit. But that's, I'm trying to be more mature. Education. What am I doing in five years? I'm going to continue growing as a parent and a father. I want to continue growing. And what does that mean, growing as well, a parent and a father? What, what, is, what does it mean to be a good father? I, 
I'm learning. There's no book on it. I had a great template put in place by my parents and my sisters who have been married and successful for years for friends that have been married long terms, you know, very long term, knowing that both of us have friends that have not had that that element in their life. I think I need to keep growing both, you know, my own education and patience uh, with not only my uh, myself more than my daughter, but also with Heidi and I in our relationship because our views differ on how we might raise or approach things. You know, I spend a lot of time with her because Heidi works. I get to be a stay-at-home dad. But doing podcasts and speaking, that gives me a lot of flexibility. Speaking of speaking, I'd like that to grow. I'd like to share what you and I do mm-hmm. in different parts of the world. We may have different names, but I think our mission is very, very similar. It's not who we are. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, who, it's not what we are, but it's who we are and the things we speak about. I think that's important, especially in this day and age. And I find myself being more open to hearing people one-on-one or talking just with a neighbor that needs an ear. I, I, I look at some of the challenges that my daughter may face in the future and looking at uh, Black Lives Matter movements and speaking to p- people of color in my life. And it's almost pandering to suggest that I, I, I need the affirmation that I've been nice to them. And I don't have to ask myself, they are good people in my life. They are people I would leave my child with. They are people, they're people. And I want them to know that I love and care about them. And then I want them to help me. How do I further educate my daughter to be better at these issues that we are? Um, I think that's a significant challenge for me. Uh, my wife is a genius. Elle is smarter than me. So education, that's kind of in. During this COVID, it will change. We will improve. This will pass. But we need to be human beings and quit pushing each other away and work together. And also, you know, for me, five years, wow, dude, I want to be alive. I do. It sounds shitty and it's not, I'm not a doomsayer. You know that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna right. to kick the crap out of it every day of my life. But there's some real issues, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm mean and I'm tough and I know that. But with my health background, I have to be on top of my game. And I want to continue to be educated with my health. And um, again, I, I, I think just contribute to who we are as people as a whole and find better ways that I can do that. What do you say? It's kind of interesting. So we had, we had some comments on, on Facebook. We posted about this and said, hey, come out, come watch us. And we had some people who, who made some comments and, and you felt the need to, to, to come in and say, Hey, look, look, I, I, I'm okay. You know, like, 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 don't worry about me, but what do you, what do you say when people, people essentially look at you and look at what you've gone through and say, Bobby, I can't relate. I can't relate to what you've gone through. What's your response there? I can't relate to others facing certain challenges either. I, I'll be the first, you know, to, uh, be empathetic about I want to understand and I want to lend an ear or my experience um, to whatever they need whatever they're experiencing or whatever they're reaching out to me for or why that that statement might be made you know um, I think we're all capable and I don't know if people don't listen or they they just think it's some football saying etched on a bad high school wall somewhere that 
you know, we're capable of anything and everything. But that's true. And I think we prove that. And I don't have to prove to anybody how bad I see, how sick I've been, how sick I might be, how hard transplants are. Um, I don't need to prove anybody. Both my hips are made put together with more titanium than most, you know, than all the Rolex watches you could put together. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't need to prove to anybody how bad I see. Like I said, I don't fucking care what you think because what I hope people think of me is that I'm a good man and I am a good friend mm -hmm. and that I have utmost integrity and character and honesty. And when I speak to someone, you know, I want them to know that and that my experiences are different. My life experiences are different. Um, our moments that we talk about, good and bad, are different. But in the end, when challenged, I, f I have faith in people. I have hope in people. And right now, it's so lacking that, you know, um, I, I, I said this when we spoke, it's people have lost faith in themselves. And this isn't a big religious thing. Go to church, be a Bible thumper, go praise whoever. It's just believe in yourself and what you can accomplish. And you mentioned a good thing. There's an opportunity here for us to be better people, either professionally or just as people right now in this divisive political climate, with this divisive health pandemic. These are opportunities for us to really challenge who we are, put your money where your mouth is and to lead by that example, despite what people might say. Um, can everybody do what I do? Maybe not. I can't do what you might, what you've accomplished. I know that. Um, I do. I, I, hey, everybody, you know, different things and our strengths and challenges are different. Is there one thing to put it on, you know, that why I am the way I am? Yeah, I blame my parents. Uh, <laughs> Highest blame, compliment you can give them, right? I, I blame the people I've been around my whole life unknowingly have influenced me, the people I have in my life. I'm, if I don't have a dollar, you know, I may not have a dollar in my name. I'm the richest person in the world because of the people I have. And it's funny, you know, I, I want to be, have a strong people and experiences I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's, it's a, it's a complicated issue when someone, I, I help a lot of people just because they ask, I've never met them. They reach out to me on Facebook. Um, and uh, they're, they're great quality people. We have these great conversations and they ask for, little hints here and there. I'm not an expert in life. I just know that I live it and whatever I have to give to make their life better, I'm willing to give. And I would hope people can do the same. I mean, your daughter, your daughter's what? Uh, six, Ella's six, five, six. Ooh, Ella. Yeah. <laughs> so I she's hate six. being a dad. <laughs> so, so what, what do you want her to say about you? She loves her dad. And when, when she's my age, she can look back and say, I love my dad. He was a good man. He was good to my mom. He was good to everybody in my life. He was good, fair, and kind. He was strong. And, you know, someone would say to her, but he has all these things, these things, these things. And she might say, he's the strongest man I ever met because how much he loved me and my mom. And love of a child, right? Uh, yeah. I don't know. When she moves forward in life, my goal with her, it's not 
what she thinks of me. It's what she thinks of herself that is most critical. Right. I want her to love herself, have respect for herself, respect for others. To I don't care who she loves, how she loves, what she loves, as long as she knows how to love. And the same thing I've said about myself. My parents taught me how to love and be loved. And I want my daughter to know how to love and be loved and uh, be a contributing member of whatever community she decides to be part of. If that comes out in the end and I'm watching down from wherever or up from where I might be, <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, I'll be standing, you know, doing backflips. That's a simple and beautiful sentiment that <laughs> all you could hope for from, for your daughter is, is, is to give her what your parents gave you. And, and that belief that, that, that she is loved and that she can go, she can go forth and do what she wants and find who she is. So yeah. Bobby, it is, it is always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'm sure that there are a ton of people out there who will have more questions and they can see you on, on what is it? Ride, rideblindracing.com. Yeah. Uh, people can reach me at, uh, Rideblindracing.com. That's my website, www.rideblindracing.com. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm an open book. Um, I hang out with Chris Waddell, so people got to know. I mean, my standards can't be that high. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we have all have great experiences to share. And if anybody wants to share them with me, um, please do. You know, this is, this is the way we grow and learn about people. To break down those walls of fear is to reach out into the unknown. And I may be an unknown for people, but you know, yeah. Come, um, thank you. Uh, being part of One Revolution, I followed you since day one, and I'm I'm so proud to be been been your wingman for a lot of years and a lot of neat places. But to see your growth and what you've accomplished, it's a you're you know you're a mentor and a role model for not only a lot of people but me. And I, you know what, it, keep it up. You got a great team. Uh, we have a lot of great history behind us that makes us who we are. And I think we're very lucky to share it. And thank you for this platform. And thank you everybody for listening. Yeah, thank you. And keep keep going forth and, and, and sucking all the life out of every day, you know, get as much out of it as you possibly can. You are a, a tremendous role model for all of us. There's some, uh, there's a quote from even, even cowgirls get the blues. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in an attractive and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in sideways, chocolate in one hand, wine in the other, body thoroughly used up, totally worn out, screaming, woo-hoo, what a ride. And Bobby, I think you do that more than anybody I know. So <laughs> we keep it up, it. man. You too, and uh, let's, let's talk later. Let's keep doing this. We got bike rides to have. Let's do it. Sounds good. It, Thank Thanks you so much, man. Oh, turn. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you all. It's been wonderful. You can check us out. Uh, One Revolution on, on Instagram. Uh, yeah, OneRevolution.org. Yeah, we're doing our name tags programs. We're putting it together. If anybody has any interest of us connecting with your kid's school for the fall, who knows what's going to happen educationally moving forward. But we are putting together some programs where we will be able to do it remotely. So uh, please check us out. And thank you again for joining us.